Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. From trendy food trucks to ubiquitous burrito chains to high-end restaurants, tacos have become as American as apple pie. But in her compelling new book, Eating NAFTA, Trade and Food Policies and the Destruction of Mexico, Professor Alicia Galvez shows that while the world awakens to Mexican cuisine, Mexicans themselves are often unable to afford the food they've eaten for centuries, and their overall health is plummeted as a result of the inexpensive processed foods and sugary drinks that have flooded the country post-NAFTA. Galvez exposes how changes in policy following NAFTA have fundamentally altered one of the most basic elements of life in Mexico, sustenance. Mexicans are faced with a food system that favors food security over subsistence agriculture, development over sustainability, market participation over social welfare, and ideologies of self-care over public health. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Alicia Galvez. Alicia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Eating NAFTA, trade, food policies, and the destruction of Mexico. The title, if NAFTA was like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, I imagine like it just eating the country. But <laughs> but in some sense, <laughs> as you read the book, there's some truth to that, <laughs> to that apocalyptic imagery, That's right? That's a bad metaphor. Yeah. And I don't know if it's um, if it's the if it's NAFTA eating us or us eating NAFTA and becoming <laughs> becoming you know this sort of idea of appetites being unlimited and and monstrous is sort of at the root of some of these capitalist uh, formations um, that NAFTA brought right this idea that people should just eat in massive quantities um, things that may or may not be what they want or sustaining of health and communities. And if I want like a strawberry in December, I should have it. Like it's just, this is the kind of, you know, it's, it was the novelist Barbara Kingsolver did this discipline where for a whole year, yeah. their family just ate what they could get local, like, like as if they were pre-moderns basically or, or early. Right. You know, and it was easy. Yeah. And it changes your view on, on eating, right? to eating strawberries in December and lots of things that we don't know where they come from in the United States. And there's sort of a seamlessness to our food supply that we don't really realize, um, you know, what, what goes into it. So this book is a little bit about kind of tearing off the curtain and seeing the not so pretty side of how these relationships um, operate. And you open the book with a story about a woman who has relocated from Mexico to New York. And like many immigrants, is just you know hardworking, busting her back to sort of feed her family, be prosperous. You know, again, most like most immigrants embody this sort of uh, the uh, rigorous work ethic. Americans like fa- imagine for our culture much better than people born born here. <laughs> but you, she winds up her and her son with. with major health risks, you know, there's diabetic complications, heart complications, because her, she's had to sort of adjust to eating a, a sort of Northeastern urban diet, which 
you know, things that used to be cheaper uh, yeah. and, and, and plentiful where she was from in Mexico are, are not as accessible. Processed food is accessible and you just wind up. I mean, she resists it and she, she tries to blend and things like that. But, but the gravitational pull towards things that are mass produced by big food corporations is just, I mean, the undertow is incredibly powerful. That's a good word, undertow, because it is powerful. And there is this, um, you know, kind of force that that is pushing us in certain directions. It doesn't mean we don't have choice and it doesn't mean that we're not making decisions all the time. But we are um, we have certain things that are available to us and we're more and less empowered to consume in certain ways. And that the, the way the landscape has changed further um, orients us towards certain ways of eating. And some of these things, I mean, we're not automatons. We're not, even if, even if there are mad scientists, which there are, um, you know, sitting in Frito-Lay, you know, experimenting with flavor profiles and chemical combos to make us want more and more of their sweet and salty snacks. Um, that is happening. Um, but we're not robots. We're not just going to blindly do it. There are a lot of reasons why we tend towards convenience and price. And there's a whole slew of decision-making factors, time. And some of these things intersect uncomfortably with other things, right? So, um, you know, when we talk about slow food and how slow food um, gets more and more rare um, and hyper palatable industrial food becomes more and more uh, available and cheap after NAFTA, we also have to take into consideration that slow food kept women, you know, in the kitchen, um, you know, making tortillas historically required 24 to 40 hours of work every week. Um, and so that amount of domestic labor, um, there are people who see convenience foods as liberation. Um, and there are people who see moving to New York City and taking the subway and buying pizza on the way home as liberation. Um what we have to be cognizant of is that there are trade-offs and there are things that are gained and things that are lost. And the problem becomes when there are people who want to eat in this, uh, in their traditional ways and they no longer have access to it. Um, they want to cook that way and they no longer have access to it. And the slow, you know, push, what I call in the book, really a slow death, of, um, you know, these chronic diseases that creep up on people, um, you know, through these industrialized food systems. And, you know, that's the, that's the thing that's really concerning. Yeah. And so you're, yeah, you don't deny that we have agency and you're right. These things are pretty complex and we wouldn't want to go back to very many of us, like a certain traditional cultures. And, and yet, you know, because of certain choices that that modern society provides for women, for for all of us, you know. But yeah. what you're saying is like it, it, it's better. I hear you saying to make these choices with our eyes a little more wide open. And, exactly. And, and oftentimes, at best, we've got one eye kind of half open, <laughs> and we're seeing a picture that's pretty constructed for us by interests right. that that really benefit by us looking at the picture that way. Absolutely. And let's face it, we've been um, socialized to think that way. Um, before I started this research, my eyes would glaze over when people talked about trade deals. I didn't think trade deals had anything to do with my life. I didn't think that these were moral and ethical or human rights issues. I didn't think that 
Um, the diabetes epidemic in Mexico was worse than the drug cartel violence. I didn't know any of these things. And I didn't realize how decisions made by elected officials who I have a role in electing are not only affecting my life in the United States, but they're rippling into the lives and homes of people in Mexico. So I'm not sure our definition of democracy is big enough to account for (laughs) these transnational consequences of U.S. trade policy and economic policy that favors certain kinds of industries, no matter what the ripple effects are, no matter what the environmental costs are. I was listening to a podcast just yesterday where they were talking about Google and this leaked tape where people were kind of venting after Trump had won and, and, and conservative punditry saying, you know, look, there's all this bias and what are we going to do? And, 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 and one of the commentators said, you know, ironically, Google would probably almost welcome regulation because in- inevitably they get to influence it. And then the, the regulation will happen will marginalize smaller upstart competitors, right? So, you, so like, we think, oh, you know, you hear, like, big corporations gripe about regulation, and yet often at the same time are solicitous of it because it drives out competition. Similarly, right, with trade deals, very often the, the, you say that, you know, in, towards the conclusion of the book, you talk a little bit about free trade, and you're like, well, I mean, how free is the trade? How free are the markets when they're really always interventionist? And oftentimes, it's people with lots of money and power and influence that actually are, are steering the direction of markets. So so this is, this is kind of the crony capitalism accusation that so often the, 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 our food kind of trade is, is driven by that. Absolutely. Yeah, that was one of the things that really got me going with this. I'm an anthropologist. What do I know about trade? But it just seemed obvious to me the minute, you know, even before I started doing the research, just knowing about Mexico about migration from Mexico to the US, I knew free trade wasn't really free because one of the giveaways was that so many avocado growers in Mexico had to stop exporting their avocados to the United States after NAFTA, which supposedly opened up the markets because Florida avocado growers were so worried about what was going to happen after NAFTA that they got all these sweetheart deals built into it. So it never seemed like free trade to me. And I always felt like, Okay, if, if we're talking about unfettered capitalism, show me show me what that looks like, right? So you know, speak to me in you know simple terms: supply, demand, the market generates you know prices. Um, people are able to encounter each other in the marketplace. This is my understanding from what I've been told: free trade is. And then you look at these deals, and who was at the table? It was billionaires. It was corporations that were not trying to liberate trade. They were trying to protect their own interests. Um, they later rebranded it as, as a free trade agreement. But the initial um, impetus of this agreement was people seeing this trend towards globalization and saying, how are we going to protect our private investment in, in these markets and make sure that we profit from it? And you and I were not invited to the table in, you know, in the early 90s, and we're not invited now that the trade deal is being renegotiated. These things happen behind closed doors. But the corporations do have their voice represented, um, not least because they have a revolving door with a lot of the regulatory agencies uh, and the lobbyists. 
but also because they make very clear they they wail and moan about certain regulations or they wail and moan about um, different kinds of um, arbitration uh agreements that are part of the trade deals and how they need certain protections for intellectual property, like, you know, intellectual property, like seeds and corn and things like that. Um, these things, you know, do get hammered out in a way that benefits the corporations and that's really made to their specifications. Yeah. If it was like really free trade, like this, right. Why couldn't we just have a trade deal on like on a piece of paper, like one page, like, Hey, we're going to have for no tariffs. We can trade here. I could, right. Like, yeah. I mean, that's not how it Yeah, absolutely. You have an insight. By the way, when you said you're an anthropologist, what do I know about trade? I'm thinking like, you're thinking you're going to be Jane Goodall. And all of a sudden, instead of girls (laughs) in the midst, you're like, in a corporate boardroom, like, all right, I'm trying to think like the trade negotiators. <laughs> like, here, what do I do now? Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. But you have this startling fact that Mexicans are among the world's top processed noodle consumers. Yeah, number one. <laughs> that That is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And it's really sad because Mexican food, you know, I'm not Mexican, but I'm happy to say Mexican food is the best food and on earth, I think it's the most delicious and complex and diverse, um, you know, incredibly elaborate cuisine. And um, a lot of people can't eat their traditional food anymore. Um, it's just not as easily accessible. Um, life has been reconfigured in ways that take that further and further out of reach. Um, and what comes in, in into those gaps, you know, instant noodles. Uh, (laughs) They're easy, they're cheap, they're ubiquitous. Um, They sit on a shelf, you know, indefinitely until they're eaten. You know, all of these things are are real shifts in the food system. Yeah. And you chronicle in the book, you say, look, that there's no kind of golden age with with this stuff, right? I mean, things are always evolving, particularly after colonialization. But there was a lot more agency. Things hit equilibriums. Yeah. That, that, you know, each successive kind of massive cultural socioeconomic shift, the populace adapts and, and to the before sort of mass industrialization and, and, and globalization, it, it was a pretty healthy diet. The average Mexican ate, you know, you, that, that it was pretty rich in nutrients, lots of vegetables. There's there's proteins integrated. And, and, and this now is. It's sort of the stuff of HGTV now, right? Like this is celebrity chefs are making stuff that was traditional cuisine. Whereas, you know, the average or Mexicans who are not sort of in the the upper echelon economically are are forced to eat just like if you were of limited means here in an urban center America. Exactly. Globalization has brought certain things within reach of everyone. And because of, there's there's a feedback effect. And this is the thing that sort of intrigued me. Why is it that suddenly you can get hand ground corn tortillas in Copenhagen? Um, um, you know, famed chef of Noma, um, named one of the world's best restaurants and one of the world's best chefs decided to declare tortillas the perfect food. Um, there's this incredible uh, attention, which I think is merited and appreciation for Mexican food as, as this um, really incredible cuisine at the same time that it's falling out of reach of everyday people. And I think, you know, it took me a while to figure out that these are, these processes depend on each other. Renee Redzepi and, and Enrique Olvera 
And these chefs, I mean, Rene Redzepi had a pop-up restaurant in Tulum and in, in Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. He charged um, $600 for one dinner. Um, he sold out in about a day, all of the tickets, six months in advance for this pop-up restaurant. Um, you can't charge prices like that for something that's available to everybody um, in every community at every price point the way this cuisine once was. Um, it used to be fine dining in Mexico was very colonial. It was French. It was Spanish. It was about, you know, haute cuisine with lots of sauces and, and things like that. Just like in Europe, it was an emulation of Europe. And people might eat tacos and tortillas at home at all classes, uh, all class levels. Um, but that was the cuisine of the peasants. It was the humble cuisine, um, the cr fresh ground torn corn tortillas and beans. Um, wealthy people would never be caught dead serving beans to their guests. Today, that's been inverted in a way. And now, you know, it's very, um, elite to, uh, to serve, you know, different corn, different color corn tortillas, um, and to charge high prices for them. But these, uh, this is because it's fallen out of reach of working people. Yeah. And this is sort of a, you make the point, this is like quinoa, right? Like gourmet, things like that. So, it, so something that used to be an indigenous source of nutrition and sustenance now, like basically the trade structure disincentivizes you eating that, right? It incentivizes you shipping it to Copenhagen and eating processed food because you're trying to sort of get a leg up and make more money and climb the sort of socioeconomic ladder. So this sort of stuff is all incentivized over against what was readily available and sustainable. Exactly. And because of the, the kind of capitalism that we're seeing around the world now, the speculation, right? The the brokers, um, the NYU graduate who grew up in Miami, who decided that his business graduating from NYU business school was going to be creating a corn exporting company. Um, and he goes to rural farmers in Mexico and buys the corn that they were just recently feeding to their pigs because nobody wanted to buy it. And he's, you know, he takes it from them. He's, promises to pay them a fair price. I believe he does. Uh, but then he takes that corn and it gets taken to Copenhagen and it gets taken to London and New York City and Chicago. And it's, you know, ground and sold in, in you know, very expensive plates of tacos for very elite foodies. Um, so there's, you know, that sort of speculative um, capitalism, which depends on stories. Um, and I argue that there's a narrative capital that, that, is at the root of all of this. Who tells the best story? And in fact, Rene Redzepi said, in fact, about, about tortillas, he said no one had told their story yet. I don't know what he means because the origin myths of the Mesoamerican people revolve around corn. So there's there's encyclopedic, you know, origin myths and, and literature that have to do with corn and the relationship between corn and people. But I think Redzepi was referring to no one, meaning no one, um, in the in the global capital market of today, right? So no one, no one's commodified the story. No right? one commodified it. No one made it elite. Um, no one took it out of the place of its origin. And so, by transporting it and by being those brokers, those mediators, profits are made. Capital capital is um, is produced um, and and regenerated. And then, in the meantime, the kind of capitalism, you know, the 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 counterpoint to this is that because we're not talking about a capitalism premised on production or on goods, 
Um, a lot of people in Mexico are left out of this, right? Their, their stories aren't available to us. Um, their stories aren't necessarily circulating or valuable. And so what is the role of the average person who used to make stuff or do stuff or farm or sell things in Mexico? Their role today in the market is to consume. And where and how do you consume? If your lean, means are limited, then you're consuming the cheapest, um, most ubiquitous consumer goods. And those are the ultra-processed foods. Yeah, and you, you talk about one of the sort of the more detailed or the shadow side of, for instance, Mexican prosperity since NAFTA, that, that sure, you know, the, there has been an increase in wealth and these things. But if you, there's also come come with it the sort of corresponding, just like in a mirror image to the neighbor to the north, there's growing income inequality and, 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 and there's more stratification. So it's sort exactly. of like if you, if you are in a population center or or an industry where the where the the get the getting is good it's great for you but then for, but that's exactly. not most mexicans right and many americans right i mean you many people that for instance out of frustration voted f- for donald trump in the last election were are, are, they feel left out as well that 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 exactly. when you talk about all these aggregate gains there you know there are particulars that are lost Exactly. No, and thank you for bringing that up because that's another thing that we that motivates me and part of the reason why I'm having these conversations about the book is that I think that we've been duped. We've been told um, by Trump and also by Bernie Sanders um, and his campaign that these trade deals are, you know, really, really disadvantaging um, Americans. And the way that it gets framed is this idea of Mexico winning and the United States losing. And I think that that's a really problematic binary because those winning are the billionaires in both countries. They're really well positioned. It's been a bonanza for them. Yeah, you don't become Um, a billionaire by losing lots of games. (laughs) They're doing amazing with NAFTA. They love it. But then we have, you know, the vast majority of us who, you know, are facing um, more precarity, more income inequality, um, maybe more purchasing power. But what is the quality of, of the goods that are available to us to purchase? Right. There's this sort of cheap, ubiquitous, um, you know, distribution of, of things that in many cases are harmful. Right. So, you know, these snacks and, and, and beverages and, and cigarettes and things that have sort of become available everywhere. And then the decline in the ability to live in ways that were more connected, right? So um, families needing to, you know, be separated either by the border or even just by distance um, within the same country trying to find, make a living. Um, and so we see these very dr- destructive results. And if working people, um, you know, humble people in both the United States and Mexico sort of compared notes, we might have a lot more in common with each other than we do with the billionaires in each of our countries, right? And we might actually demand a different vision of trade and a different ideal of prosperity in which it's not just about a few, you know, getting all the spoils um, like pirates, but it's about uh, the, you know, more stability and sustainability and health and well-being for all of us. 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald samantha blythe David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Wittenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Your capitalist sort of economist is going to say, look, there's creative destruction, right? Like this is part of what, you know, we wouldn't want to, we, we don't say, hey, we don't like lament the people that made horseshoes for yeah. having their industry kind of marginalized because we have public transit and cars and things like this. You know, yeah. we, we, so, I mean, we, we, how do you respond to that? Like, look, there's, there's progress. We, you know, we, we, we want to sort of, you know, that, that yes, of course there's losses and we have to figure out how to mitigate that. But this is, you know, the nature of the modern world and, and, and living in a world of free ideas, free markets. And, and, and these are, you know, there's always a, there, there, there are by nature's winners and losers in that game. I mean, how do you respond to, um, which I'm sure you often have conversations like this, right? Where people yeah. are, come on, this sounds Marxist. Come on. What are you saying? I mean, this live in the modern world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't want people to misinterpret my, viewpoint as being that we should somehow go back to this imaginary fantasy land where we all grew our grew and ate our own food. I couldn't do that if I wanted to. I'd starve to death in the first season. Um, I don't have a green thumb, but I, you know, I'm not proposing that. What I am proposing is that we um, analyze more rigorously what the costs and benefits are and for whom those costs and benefits um, are going. And I think that, you know, one of the really key things here is that Mexico did have a vision of um, development in which it wanted to remove people from the countryside. They called it de-peasantification when in behind closed doors, they weren't terribly open about this, but they anticipated people being displaced. And they, in fact, estimated the number to be about a half million people that would be displaced. What they didn't anticipate was that there would be a million people each year for every year from NAFTA until 2008. 
So when we talk about migration being a challenging issue in the United States, most people don't point to NAFTA and say, oh, look, we caused that. <laughs> Our policies produce that migration and anticipated that sort of acceptable collateral damage of a half million, but they're not taking responsibility either for how the policies that elected officials chose produce this instability in the countryside. So we may not, you know, there's no turning back the clock. There's no, you know, everybody gets a piece of land and grows their own food. However, how can we have a more balanced notion of progress where we're not so easily lied to about what the goals are and who the beneficiaries are going to be and where we can actually, you know, have a conversation about Okay, what what um, you know what happens when people are displaced? Are they are there other sectors ready to receive them? Are those sectors going to produce health and well-being and stability? Um, or you know, is there this Faustian bargain where people have to give up their lives uh, for the prosperity of some? I don't think that most of us would agree. That's a good part. You know, you talk about how there's this because of sort of the exporting of our processed food, high sugar food, you know, manufactured by you know, big food corporations. There's this rise in diabetes, other obese-related illnesses in Mexico, just like there is in the United States. It's, it's just, I was thinking recently with the deaths in Puerto Rico with the hurricane and how they were 16 or 17 deaths reported initially and then it came out there were thousands, you know, three thousands, yeah. the conservative estimate. And, yeah. and yet, even though that there that's factual and, and, and it's empirical, it's still it, it's it, it's not it doesn't sink in as much as, as this. You know, and I you point out the same thing is true in, in Mexico in general. If people are dying at the hands of cartels or at and because they're victimized by trafficking and, and things like that, people that registers but yeah. the slow death by by all sorts of nutrition related things and heart disease and obesity that just doesn't it, yeah. it, it, it's not even a statistic for people it's just kind of it's all completely off the radar yeah it's so true and let's not forget that the corporations that produce these foods and beverages have invested heavily over the last 40, 50 years in research to try to confuse us about what causes these illnesses, right? So um, there's been a lot of obfuscation and there's been some good, um, you know, kind of uh, exposés that have uncovered the, all of the pretty nefarious ways that Coca-Cola, for example, has funded research to try to demonstrate that Coca-Cola is, is not bad for you um, and what how they've suppressed data that it is bad for us. Um, all of these things. Um, do, you, do you feel like if you drink Coke and you don't think it's bad for you, you just shouldn't be allowed to I walk know. around Western society? <laughs> I mean, it's like it's OK yeah. if you do it like but it's just like, yeah. hey, you just know it's bad for you. it's just like the idea of clean coal. You pick up a piece of coal, you get dirty. <laughs> you can't make it clean. Right. Like you just yeah. know that. Right. I mean, Absolutely. but they've they've invested so many billions of dollars into convincing us that these are things that are elements of personal choice, right? That if if you drink Coke till you're sick, that that is a, a pr your own problem of, of lacking moderation, of lacking discipline. Um, and therefore, if you're sick, it's your, it's your choice, right? And so if you want to be healthy, it's your choice, 
right? And so there's this sort of consumer-oriented idea about health as being something that we do and we get for ourselves, and it's entirely behavior-based. Guess what? The public health research indicates that it's actually bullshit. I mean, the, the epidemiologically, it's the structural factors that over-determine our health outcomes. What we do or don't do in terms of personal behavior is like the iceberg sticking out of the water. But the rest of it is are these structural factors. It's, it's where we live, it's poverty and wealth, it's uh, racial disparities, income disparities, um, all of what jobs we do, what kind of chemicals we're exposed to. Um, all of these things are, are really impacting health. And so when the entire food system is transformed and how people live is transformed and any income inequality is heightened and people are no longer able to eat and live in the ways that they were accustomed to historically for millennia, um, to then say, oh, people have a sweet tooth or they need to walk more is really disingenuous. <laughs> and But it is what they've invested in. That's the marketing um, strategy is to try to convince us that we're responsible, that it's it's our choice whether to consume these products or not. And it's really problematic. Yeah, I mean, people love moralizing to poor people, right? <laughs> okay. okay, I mean, it's yeah. You know, Bill Maher did this bit a couple months ago where he was talking about this very point. He was, he did all these people like celebrity fitness people who wrote these books about health who died at like sixty eight, <laughs> and how basically this is it's environmental, it's these systemic factors that that that, uh, that contribute and that are much more determinative. Yeah. Then, and not that you might not live longer making good choices, but but that that's one factor among many, most of which are systemic. Uh, you know, it, it, but I mean, do you think we just deceive ourselves into that? A to to you know feel comfortable with the system we're in. B to feel like we have control. I mean, is it is it sort of a yeah. a, a myth that's easy to live by because of the, the consequences? I mean, we, we, um, it, I think it's psychological. I think we want to feel like we're in control. I think structural explanations of anything are a little bit unsatisfying, even when they're true, because it implies that somehow what we do or don't do is less important than, than the conditions in which we're, we're living and that we're born into often. Um, and so I think, you know, we like to believe we're in control. You know, I subscribe to it. I wouldn't do yoga if I didn't think there was some <laughs> aspect to, you know, wellness that was coming from my own, you know, attitude and willingness to do the work. Um, these, these things are true. They're very seductive narratives and had every aspect of life. So we don't believe in the United States that healthcare is a right. We believe that it's a consumer good, that you can buy it if you have the means, that you can enhance it if you do the right thing and you make the right choices and you're disciplined and you pursue wellness, et cetera. And we've exported that model globally. Um, so places where healthcare has been a right historically, we tell them we're not going to trade. We're not going to do trade deals with you unless you stop spending so much on on health and you start, you know, making our investments secure um, in terms of you know these global corporations and foreign direct investment. So we have this model that really emphasizes the individual and this sort of consumer choice uh, uh, system. Um, and then what happens is that these other things, these other layers, right, like trade policy happen outside of, of that 
scope, right? They're out of our view. Our lens is not pointed at them. And so, you know, there's, there are things happening behind that curtain that we're not paying attention to because we really don't think it has anything to do with us. Yeah. You know, I had a, a guy in the show a couple months ago who wrote a book called from, from gangsters to governors. It was all about gambling in the United States. I mean, he's editor of the San Diego Tribune, fascinating guy, great book. And what I realized when I read it, it's like it, gambling is legal in 48 States, right? He said, governors of both parties love it. They make more money than the mafia made on it. It's like an yeah. invisible t- tax. You know, you can raise revenue without And I realized this in reading this book, when is it ever talked about politically? It so drives so much of our infrastructure. Yeah. And yet it's like never talked about. Unless somebody wants to put a casino in your backyard, then it's like, yeah. don't put it there. But it's just one of those things that just it is invisible from the conversation. So is so much about food systemically, right? I mean, people might go lobby to get certain kind of labeling. So again, their personal choice Right. They have more agency there. But but I, there's just like I, no one in any debate. I guarantee you in the midterms in 2020, you pick a year, 2022, 2046. Yeah. No one's going to say, hey, I'm on the systemic food platform. I want to talk about that. <laughs> right. I mean, that's just that's just, it's so it affects every moment of our lives. And yet nobody there's no market for the discussion. Exactly. I attended, I'm going to tell you a little story. So I attended an international um, policy of people, scholars who work on food. Um, And there were scholars from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, from Europe, from the United States. Um, It was striking. All of the scholars from around the world were talking about systems. They were talking about, this is our government's policy. This is what climate change is doing. This is how many millions of people need to be fed and how we're not going to be able to feed them because this many acres of farmland is being lost to climate change, logging, flooding, etc. Then you had the U.S. scholars. Every single one of them was like, we're analyzing the effects of putting a green cart on this corner of this street in Madison, Wisconsin, and how many people, and their their N, their number of people that they were examining to see if they um, increased their vegetable consumption was less than a dozen, right? <laughs> Every pro- project, you know, the way we think about food policy and food justice in the United States is so micro, right? It's like, let me walk five blocks to my farmer's market and ta- have a conversation with the farmer, and that's beautiful, right? It's thinking locally is beautiful, but we have to see how even, you know, the local farmer who drives, you know, a few miles to bring stuff to that, to that farmer's market is part of the food system. He or she is able to grow or not grow market or not market the things that they're doing because of the larger system. And they may be winners. They may be people like, you know, my New York city farmer's market that can get away with charging, you know, $12 for a quarter pound of, of greens. Um, and they may, you know, feel like they have this niche that's really secure and profitable, but overall, they're just as much a part of the food system. And the fact that people think that somehow eating fresh fruit and vegetables is like this elite, you know, crunchy thing that, you know, Obama could be critiqued for, for liking kale or whatever, you know, that's a, a, a symptom of, of the illness that we have in this country where we think we don't think systematically about these things. And we're not noticing how the food system completely intersects with public health and intersects with health budgets in terms of, you know, the coming, you know, the, the, 
mortality rates, um, our healthcare costs rising because of these chronic diseases. And these are all products of how our food system operates. And they're totally binational, if not global, right? I'm focusing on the Mexico-US relationship, but these are things that really connect us to the rest of the world. And we can't think in such a micro way. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is like, let's say I make the most, you know, locally minded or local decision, you know, globally minded thing. It's still a sort of choice in a system that's constructed and does all the and has all these effects. Right. So like I I might be making decisions that aren't really deleterious to my personal health or conscience, but it still contributes to a system that if I knew the effects of it, I probably want to throw up. Exactly. And we're reinforcing that idea of a right? and, and also the idea that means determined choice, right? Oh, if you can afford it, buy those $12 greens, right? And be healthy. And if you can't, sorry. Um, and, you know, it's reinforcing that idea that somehow these things are just elements of consumer rights and consumer choice, as opposed to, you know, really basic fundamental things that governments used to be concerned about. And you think of like the old stereotype where you have all these thin workers and the and, and the sort of plump supervisor <laughs> manager. Now it's sort of like the opposite, right? You have yeah. to have this. You have to have the means and the time to be fit, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so you have the unfit working class and the fit sort of yeah. you know class with means and capital. Absolutely. I think Julie Gutman calls it thin fit biocitizenship. As, as the sort of elite model these days, right? This idea of fitness. And, and you demonstrate good citizenship by being fit, by being, um, you know, a, a, a responsible consumer, um, not consuming in excess. And cons- somehow consuming in excess is, you know, bad citizenship. It's a lack of moderation. Um, and so then, you know, diet-related illness, by definition, is seen as this failure, failure of citizenship, failure of responsibility, as opposed to all of these other structural factors that are going into these things. In the Da Vinci Code, you know, there was this albino priest who was, I think, with the, Op- the Opus Dei kind of order, and like he would like self-flagellate, you know, like it, it, you know, the bleeding, you know, the, the 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 leather thing around his leg, and you know, inflict pain on himself for repentance. Is that like what I should do when I go to like a gourmet Mexican <laughs> food truck? Should I just Opus Dei myself? Like, yeah, how yeah. much should I self-flagellate when I do things like that? Well, that's the thing. I have a line in the book where I'm like, not to bring a bitter taste to our tacos. I mean, we should be eating our tacos and spending as much as we're willing to spend on it. I mean, it's an art form. And the fact that I can, you know, have Enrique Olvera make, you know, corn tortillas for me in New York City, I consider to be a wonderful thing. Um, I can't always afford to eat it, but but when I can, I enjoy it. Um, You know, no, I don't think we should feel, you know, I don't think we should self-flagellate. I think we should be a little bit more aware of these ripple effects and connect the dots. And then when we are having these conversations in other domains, if we're talking about labor rights, if we're talking about human rights, if we're talking about uh, global, you know, global affairs, diplomatic relationships between the United States, our trading partners, then we need to perk our ears and not assume that these things are unrelated to our everyday experience, but actually ask ourselves, how is this food system working? Um, You know, how many children are being enslaved to pick these tomatoes for me so I can eat them in December? Um, We can think about these issues in a little bit more of a macro way and encourage our elected officials to do so, so that they can't negotiate these things behind closed doors with reps from the 
corporations at the table so that they have to have these conversations out in the open and let us, you know, air our views on them. Um, I think that's that's the thing that we have to do, not get bitter about it, but also celebrate the things, you know, the aspects of of this cuisine. You know, I think um, we have such a poor view um, right now coming out of Washington in terms of, you know, the Mexican people and what they offer to the world and to our country. And I think, you know, cuisine is a wonderful example for greater appreciation Um of the incredible richness of this culture and the very close ties historically between our two countries. And we shouldn't just, you know, go to the new place that Yelp or Google tells us is the hot, you know, taco truck in our communities um, without also looking at the people making this cuisine as human beings who are tied into the same global forces that we are. Yeah, You know, you list several sort of like maybe success stories, people that are resisting the sort of ecosystem, the socioeconomic ecosystem and a bright spot. I wonder, are there bright spots politically you see on the landscape or where there are there are there examples of of particular politicians who actually care about that? <laughs> you're like, oh, my gosh. OK, uh, my cynicism abates for a moment. This is this is good. <laughs> I hope I, I hope I can counter your cynicism. I'm not sure I can. I mean, well, look at you're in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is is one of the cities that has had a um, soda tax. There are some, you know, forward thinking uh, elected officials in Berkeley and in, in Philadelphia and in other places that are trying to think structurally about is how we you know, use policy in a creative and interesting way to sort of push back on these corporations on the power that they have um, to market, you know, and, and sell these products so indiscriminately. Um, and I think that's helpful. I also think in Mexico, the new president um, has been talking about how it's important for Mexico to be food sufficient, self-sufficient, um, and not so dependent on U.S. Um, commodity grain. And I think you know, that's important. I think, you know, for, for elected officials to say, you know what, I care about the health and well-being of people in my country, um, is pretty important. And, um, so we need to advocate for, for elected officials in the U S to think that way too, and connect the dots. You know, we, we have some people really working hard. We have people working hard in all of these sectors, whether it's labor justice, food justice, the farm bill, you know, school food, um, a lot of those. So I think the more we can connect the dots and, and think about these things in a connected way, well, there's hope. We'll, we'll, we can push for it, but we have to first. We have to be aware of how these things are interrelated. Well, if you want to be aware, there's no better place to start than eating NAFTA: Trade, Food Policies, and the Destruction of Mexico. It, it's a great read. I mean, I mean, very. And again, you do connect a lot of dots and have made me think about a lot of decisions. Which again, it, it's. I think it's sort of one of those things where like anxiety goes away when we demystify the problem. And, Definitely. And so, yeah, your book is it helps to demystify and put some focus to something that, that affects all of us. So thank you for writing it. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. 
go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Alicia for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Eating NAFTA. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.